Is nothing sacred? Well, if you talk to Mad Magazine senior editor emeritus Joe Rayola, you sure have to wonder. Today, Joe talks with me about growing up Catholic and his less than stellar relationship with Jesus, Zen meditation, and what's so funny about it all. I'm Rod Mead Sperry of Lion's Roar. Welcome to episode two of After the Laundry, The Misery. Hello, Rod. Hello, Joe. What do you know? I'm sitting on my Zabutan in my office with a glass of wine. You contain multitudes, don't you? <laughs> I want to start where we left off. The first time we talked, well, we, we went through a whole bunch of stuff, talking about your career at MAD, and then sort of the, you're at a bit of a way station in life, kind of experimenting with Zen and spending some time at a Zen monastery. And in fact, mm. you were just there again last weekend. I was. I was at the uh, the Zen Mountain Monastery in Mount Tremper, New York, where I've been a regular for a while, although remain robeless. I'm a robeless attendee. <laughs> There's a lot of you, though, right? You uh, robeless attendees. There are some robeless attendees, but I am in the distinct minority for sure. Uh, when a, a, attending one of the in, three or four day intensives, I think 80, 90 percent of the attendees are robed. Different colored robes is a hierarchy hierarchy in Zen, right? They've got tan robes and white robes and there's a golden robe and, and they're different colored robes. And I suppose that the robes denote different levels of spiritual achievement. Tell me about the robes, Rod. You, you, you tell me. You're a robe expert, right? <laughs> I'm anything but a robe expert. As a matter of fact, in my tradition, uh, which is Soto Zen, we are actually counseled and encouraged to sew robes just because sewing is actually a big part of the practice. I have been actually sewing my own robes, which are when you're a nobody like me, at least in this tradition, uh, they're a, sort of a dark blue that almost reads as black. And uh, I'm so good at it that I've been sewing this robe, this set of robes, for, um, I think, two years now. Wow. Yeah, and that's because I'm basically not actually really doing it. <laughs> okay, it's a long Is it the same set of robes you've been sewing for two years? Anyway, yeah, and, and, that's and to great. Say, to call it a set of robes is, is actually even, that sounds like it's more than it is. It's essentially a giant panel. It's kind of like sewing a big flag. It is, in fact, a giant rectangle. It's kind of simple, and it's a lot of straight lines. And um, you'd think I would have been done by now, I'd say, probably six or seven or eight or nine times over. Um, mm. But it hasn't gone like that. So, no, I'm not exactly a robe expert. Well, neither am I, but I'm hanging out with uh, a lot of... A lot of guys and gals who are walking around in robes. I don't really want a robe. I mean, I've thought about it. I mean, to get a robe, you, know, you have to join up and sign up, and you've got to you have to go through uh, a series of tests and qualifications have to be met and all that, and I don't want to, I don't think I want to, I don't think I want to do that. <laughs> you know, I don't think I want to become part of the order. I think that when it comes to politics and religion that a, a, a man should remain independent. I'm an independent. 
when I fill out a form that says religion, I write independent. <laughs> I like that. I like that. But but you're not so independent that you're not participating. You're participating, and you're participating for real. Oh yes, I'm I'm participating. I'm 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 bowing and um, I'm I'm cleaning pots and pans, and I'm I'm getting up at three fifty in the morning like a fool, and I'm showing up at the zendo at four twenty, and I'm meditating for nine hours a day. And why? What <laughs> a great one! Why? That is really a good question. I'm trying to find out that out. I think. I mean, I um, I've always been not always. I've long been attracted to at least the idea of Zen, if not Zen itself. And I owe that to Alan Watts, who I I still think of Alan as my greatest Zen teacher. You know, I started reading Alan when I was in college. And, you know, Alan just kicked me in the ass. I, I just loved reading Alan. Um, the way he wrote not just about Eastern um, Eastern philosophy and, and Eastern uh, religion and Buddhism and Hinduism, but also the way he wrote about Western traditions is, as well. And Alan had a great sense of humor. He was a wonderful speaker. He was a terrific writer. And I felt, you know, drawn to Zen, even though Alan was critical of Zen. In some ways, I felt drawn to Zen. And uh, many years later, when I was hosting a, uh, a radio show at WDST in Woodstock, New York, quite a while ago now, um, uh, John Dido Laurie, the the uh, founder of the Zen Mountain Monastery, used to come on as a guest. And uh, that piqued my interest a bit. I got to talk to him a little, although I didn't really feel drawn to him and after Dido died uh, his successor as the abbot of the, of the uh, monastery Ryushin Markai started to come on the show a lot every month for a number of years and I got to be very good friends with uh, Ryushin and that kind of got me back to the monastery uh, I had gone earlier I'd gone for a weekend introduction to Zen that Dido uh, led but really it was my relationship with Ryushin that got me really interested in, in practicing Zen and, and trying it on um, the whole idea of religion without God had a certain appeal for me and I think that that's still a big part of it for me religion without God or, or spirituality without God so glad I don't have to deal with God. <laughs> it's a wonderful aspect of Zen, isn't it? I mean, I do think so. Um, you know, I, I, um, I don't think I have any real problem with God, except for the fact that I'm in no way convinced that he's there. But I do have a problem often with the people who are convinced that he is there. Let's step out of Zen, the Zen stream, as it were, for a moment here. And let's talk about your relationship with God. Because uh, you're not exactly a you're not exactly a native uh, Zen practitioner. And, this is uh, true. So let's talk about what happened before Zen between you and God. I was raised Catholic, and um, I have had a, a very bad relationship with Jesus my entire life. Um, <laughs> just a terrible relationship with Jesus. We don't get along. You know, I had an insight about my relationship with Jesus just a couple of days ago after meditating on Jesus Christ Superstar. 
which was, uh, of course, uh, uh, around the, the holiday season was national phenomena with John Legend playing Jesus and all that. The insight I had is, you know what would make Jesus more palatable for me? There's been a black Jesus, there's been a white Jesus, I've seen older Jesuses, I've seen younger Jesuses, I've seen Hispanic Jesus. How about a bald Jesus? The bald men in in Western culture would be very happy. We don't have any proof that Jesus had hair, right? A, a bald Jesus would be a more virile Jesus. I'd like to see a bald Jesus, I'm just saying. That might improve my, my relationship with him. I kid Jesus all the time. I'm just, I'm, there's, there's so much damage done. Um, some people will say to me, well, it's not Jesus you have a problem with. It's it's the, the, the way his disciples talk about him. Or the way we're, no, no, it's not that, yes, I have a problem with the disciples. And yes, I have a problem with the preachers. And yes, I have a problem with the institutions of the church and all that. But I wanna be very clear. I I disagree with Jesus. That's not a statement that you hear too often, right? <laughs> when was the last time you heard someone say, I disagree with Jesus? It's not it's not even allowed. No. I let's take the, the whole turn the other cheek thing. I heard on uh on NPR today there's a church, uh, I think it's in New York State now, where they're encouraging the parishioners to bring firearms. To, I, <laughs> And he, they interviewed the pastor or the head of the church, and he said, well, I feel like it's my responsibility to keep people safe, so I'm encouraging them to bring loaded weapons to church. And they are. This is very amusing. <laughs> this is very amusing. And it, in a way, it illustrates my point. If you go to Jesus's core teaching, which is, you know, someone slaps you in the hits you on the right cheek and turns in the other. No one practices that. No one believes it. It's not good advice. It's bad advice. It's good advice for supernatural creatures who could come back from the dead. It's great advice for them. For human beings, turning the other cheek is bad advice. Always? No, not always. Nothing is always. And nothing is never. Those are absolutes. And you could say that Jesus the turn you on the cheek thing, you can give Jesus the benefit of the doubt. It compensates for the Old Testament eye for an eye, tooth, tooth for a tooth, which is also terrible advice. So th there's a lot of bad advice in the Bible, and I've given you two great examples. If, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, turn you on the cheek. No, you've got to figure each thing out for yourself. And even Christians don't basically believe turn you on the cheek. They're bringing firearms to church. So, I think Jesus said things that are demonstrably wrong. For example, yeah. no one comes to the Father except through me. And wrong. It's wrong. It's arrogant. And there are apologists for Jesus, just like there are apologists for any holy book. Uh, there are apologists for the uh, uh, Bible, and, and they'll they'll twist themselves into knots trying to come to some benign uh, in interpretation of what Jesus meant. I'll tell you my favorite Jesus quote. Luke 14, 26. Okay? Okay. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, and yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. What? Yeah. 
Luke 14, 26. Now, that's the new international version. Let me give you another version of it. Let me give you like the, the new living translation. If you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers and sisters. Yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. Now, folks, this sounds like the ravings of a street vagrant. You know, I just watched Wild Wild Country on Netflix. It kind of sounds like something that might be said about the Bhagwan. And people, people will apologize. They'll try to get into what he meant. There's, you don't have to get into what he meant in every instance. Some things are pretty clear. And I'm not, I'm not trying to suggest that everything that Jesus said was bad or wrong. Jesus said a lot of good things, if you look at the, you know, if you take it at face value. But Jesus is overrated. But I think that we can both agree he was really funny. <laughs> uh, you anticipate me, sir. But another thing of, about Jesus that disqualifies him for me, I could not worship any God that didn't have a sense of humor. And Jesus and the Bible, not a funny book, not just the New Testament, the Old Testament. There are no jokes, no riddles, no puns. Yeah, I would like to, an Al Jaffe fold in to end the Bible, It would to make it more readable. Something in this book that suggests that humor is important in the in the, in the world, and and of course, and you and I have talked about this a, a little bit before in in the Zen tradition, the Buddhist tradition. There is this concept of the laughing Buddha, but there is no laughing Jesus. There's actually a book called The Laughing Jesus, much much later. But but Jesus, there's none of this this depiction of Jesus laughing or even smiling or even happy, carrying this terrible burden. The Christian tradition for me is a big drag. Crucifixion, blood, nails, thorns, whippings. You can receive a message of love, an uplifting message of love, minus the crucifixion if you look elsewhere. I've, I've just had it with Jesus. And yet, you know, be, because of how I was raised and because of the years of Catholic school and all that, I guess I have to confess to a certain fascination with Jesus and particularly how this the myth of the crucifixion and all that how it still continues to resonate and be so important people are so drawn to it this idea that you know we're going to be saved you can be saved and someone else can save you and his death saved your sins it's an appealing message and of course completely antithetical to zen you're talking about Christianity being, or at least Jesus being humorless, and the book being humorless, and laughing Buddha or not, when you're talking about religious or spiritual aspirants and robes staring at essentially nothing for nine hours a day and being in complete <laughs> silence, why is that funny? Well, that's that's not funny. I've Your point is well taken there. I've often been sitting in meditation at the monastery and wished that Groucho Marx would break into the room with a full lit cigar and everything there is something to that that uh, religion itself tends to be humorless although i'm gonna still defend zen to the extent that the fact that there is this concept of the laughing buddha it's not that that's nothing that counts for something and of course in zen itself humor has always been important zen masters and teachers have used humor as a teaching tool, you don't have that in the West at all. 
that I'm aware of. And yet in Zen, humor seems like an important part of it, despite the fact that it can be pretty damn serious in that Zendo hall, a lot of seriousness. And it has occurred to me and it bothers me about Zen in, in formal meditation anyway, that it's okay to cry, but it's not okay to laugh. Meaning if you are sitting in meditation and you come to some deep sorrow and you burst forth with tears, a monitor is not going to come over to you and tell you to shut up. There's an understanding that you've arrived at a place that's important and that the expression of whatever those tears represent is also important. If that same thing happened with laughter, you'd probably be removed from the room. Certainly, if you're speaking to your own experiences, I think that what you're saying is true. But I would just let note that in my own experience and the communities that I practice, if you did laugh, that would be okay. It Good. wouldn't be, you, you wouldn't be encouraged to indulge it. But if this is what happened, I mean, we try to work with things as they arise. If laughter arises, so be it. Right. I mean, the key word there is in, indulge. Of course, it's, you don't want to indulge anything. Mm. But, yeah, that's permission I would certainly like. Because sometimes I find myself just smiling. And I even feel like I'm breaking the rules doing that. Just with a grin. And I, I try sometimes. I have to do it consciously, make the effort to, to see the kind of silliness that's happening in the Zendo Hall as it unfolds before me and uh, I don't know that that's pr it's probably an inappropriate thing to say perhaps some of my friends at the monastery wouldn't like that I'm using that word silliness but there is a kind of silliness to it there's a silliness to the formality and there's a silliness to the structure it may have great depth and meaning and, and all that but it's still nonetheless something about it at least strikes me as ridiculous it's a performance it is a performance yes it's a show Everyone's lined up in a certain way in their entrances and exits. And as we talked about their robes and, and there are cues and there's smoke and incense. And there are, there are lines, even the things that have to be said and there are instruments that have to be played. All there's all of that. Alan Watts said that the Buddhists make a fetish out of sitting. I don't think he said that about Buddhists. I think he said it about Zen Buddhists, right? Because to say that about Buddhists Probably. would be wholly inaccurate because there's giant gotcha. swaths of Buddhists that don't emphasize meditation at all. When it comes to Zen, it's the meditative school. I understand now that I've practiced Zen. I understand now what Alan meant. If you're practicing Zen, you kind of signed up for a lot of sitting. That's true. But one, of course, can just sit, you know, go to the pillow and bow and sit, but not in formal Zen practice. And formal Zen practice is a there's a bit of a rigmarole around the sitting. When, when there's a procedure to be followed, and there's a procedure to be followed between the sits. I'm not even saying it's necessarily wrong or bad. I'm just saying that this complicates it, and I, that's what I took Alan to mean. Listen, all these, all the re religions are, I think, fetishized to some degree when you get into the ritual of the whole thing. And ritual is a whole other thing, you know. I've I'm of two minds of, of, I'm about two minds of everything now as I approach death, you know, my old age. You know, lots of, <laughs> lots of rituals in Zen, lots of rituals in Christianity. Ritual, the, the, uh, from the Latin rite, the original meaning of that word was to be in the flow. So, yeah, on that level, ritual has a certain appeal for me. We engage in these rituals to be in the flow and the stream, to be more with the 
DAO. Yeah, fine, great. I'll sign up for that. On the other hand, Krishnamurti would point out that, that from his perspective, all these rituals were utterly meaningless. They were meaningless. The bowing, the the the, the, the kneeling, the genuflecting, the, the, all of it was, was just meaningless, empty. I, I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, lock horns with Krishnamurti of all. Don't because, you'll lose. You know, you'll, you'll, lose. <laughs> you'll lose. But I, I actually would say, and this is part of my training, is that it's less about the meaning of the ritual and more about the function of the ritual. You come in, you bow to your cushion. You turn clockwise, you bow to the room, you sit down, you face the wall, you stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight. And the reason that you're doing all of those things and it's prescribed is so that you actually don't have to spend any time thinking about what do I do next? It's about removing the choice, not so that you don't have a choice, but so that you can sort of luxuriate in choicelessness, which is kind of what the practice is. Yeah, the rituals have a, a function. And I actually in, enjoy some of them, but I think it's easy. Which ones? Uh, which ones do I like? You know, I kind of like the bowing thing. I like the whole bowing thing. I especially like it in the Zen tradition that everyone's bowing to each other. I kind of like that. I bow to you, you bow to me. As I'm fond of saying, when you're at the monastery and you're, on, you're not sure what to do or you're in doubt, just bow. You'll never get in trouble for bowing. <laughs> and I think that that's kind of fun. Um, you know, in some of the yogic traditions, you know, you would just bow to the guru. You would worship the guru. You'd worship him as if he was on some other plane. Uh, but there's a lot of bowing to each other. Uh, and that's, I, I, I get a kick out of that. <laughs> Am I supposed to get a, get a, get a kick out of it? Yeah, why not? I know, it's, it's, it's good. There are things that happen in the service at the Zen Mountain Monastery that I don't understand. They, you know, they walk in with smoke and they, you know, and they flick it around and they go up to the altar and they do certain things. And sure, it's 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 symbolic. I'm sure all of it has a meaning of some sort uh, or another, and that's and that's fine. For me, the main event is always sitting, sitting, the encounter with myself, finding my reverence. However, that manifests that reverent quality that manifests naturally for me without God. Ah, oh, that's an interesting thing. It's an interesting thing to also to look at what happens at a Zen service, and you note all this is going on, all the bowing and the kneeling and the and the pillows and the the choreography, the ritual and the liturgy. It's all happening without God. That we're choosing to do this. Without, we're not worshiping anyone. We're not. We're not asking for anything. We're not asking for a better uh, an, an afterlife. We're not asking to whatever extent belief uh, uh, in the afterlife and reincarnation is part of Zen or Buddhism. That's not part of what we're doing there. We're not talking about it. We are each there for our own reason. And I'm going to say that is to connect with something in ourselves or in the ether that is mysterious sacred and mysterious we we know it's mysterious we hope it's sacred and we're searching for it and god has nothing to do with it and fear of punishment has nothing to do with it and wanting to live to come back as a as a goat rather than a roach has nothing to do with it <laughs> where we're motivated by something else it's a much healthier paradigm than what i was served up as a second grader at saint athanasius Catholic school in Brooklyn 
1962. That was toxic. And too much of Christianity is still toxic. I have to ask, how does your relationship to Christianity inform one of your more uh, interesting episodes, which is um, running for Pope? Oh, I ran for Pope. Yeah. Then a couple of years ago, I ran for Pope. And and by the way, in case you're wondering, you cannot run for Pope, actually, um, as I oh. it was explained to me afterwards. But I, I ran for Pope. I started the Facebook page, and I got like 128 likes, which I thought was pretty good. I oh. I thought, hey, I'll be the Pope. I could be a good Pope. I've got the qualifications. I, I you know, I was raised Catholic. That's that's good enough. And I, and I had a platform. Uh, the first thing I do as Pope is I would replace all the holy water with hand sanitizer as a way to bring the church into the 21st century. Who wouldn't be in favor of that? You got this holy order in all these churches. It's just a, it's just a pool of germs, you know, holy Purell. I was going to uh, excommunicate Sean Hannity just because I wouldn't want to be a member of any, any <laughs> congregation that he was part of. I'd, I'd get rid of him. And I put together a whole a Pope platform, and um, I didn't get it. I, I didn't. I, I didn't. But I got some press. There, you know, True TV did a. You know, Stephen Colbert was running for. He put his name in the in the ring for Pope as well. So, you know, True TV did a piece, and they they identified me as one of three or four unlikely candidates for Pope. I got some notoriety as a papal candidate. I did not get it, and because I had less than two hundred likes on my Facebook page. I was able to change the name of the page, and the page is still up, and now I'm running for vice pope. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to come, come clean. You see, I'm rooting for the Catholic Church. That's really what it is. I was, I was a member of that church for a short time. I want that church to reform itself, to, to become smart and reasonable and get with common sense spirituality. Get rid of the crucifix as its symbol. It's gruesome. It's ugly. It's repugnant. Replace it with a cross, just a plain old cross, as some of the other Christian denominations do. Stop emphasizing human sacrifice and blood and torture. Stop, stop peddling science fiction and really find a Christianity that is robust, healthy, and makes sense. I'm rooting for that. I know the odds are against it, but I'm rooting for it. And that's why I ran for Pope. Does that mean that you're sympathetic to the current pope? I, I am totally sympathetic to the current pope. I think that uh, he's pushing against 2,000 years of rigidity, and he's getting he's getting shit for it. So being vice pope isn't just a convenient way to slide in there if he dies. No, I understand that that's not how it works. That they, you have to go into a secret room and they have smoke. It goes through a, a you know a, a pipe and the, I, you have to go through a whole. They fetishize the whole pope thing too. So if if the pope retires or dies, I will. I think I'll run for pope again. Is what I'll. Do. <laughs> and then if I don't get it, I'll go back to the, the vice pope thing. I I feel like I'm uniquely qualified to uh, to uh, criticize the Catholic Church, and they should listen to me more. Actually. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> okay. That, that's what I that's what I think. You know, so I appreciate your uh your self assuredness. You know the Zen uh, monastery there, that used to be a Catholic 
place. It used to be or a Christian retreat center. There's actually a giant crucifix etched into the back wall of the Zen Mountain Monastery. It's a unique one too, isn't it? It is. It's one of the, you know, there are basically three different kinds of crucifixes, and this is the least popular of the three. Uh, the most popular crucifix is the almost dead Jesus. That's the suffering almost dead in agony Jesus. We're all familiar with that. Then there's the dead Jesus on the crucifix. He's he's dead. But, so that's not good, but he's better than the other one. Um, they're both gruesome. But the third kind of crucifix that you sometimes see is the is the magic trick Jesus, as I call it. It's the ta-da, Jesus. It's the resurrected <laughs> Christ on the cross, but he's he's feeling fine. And that's, there's a giant that kind of magic trick Jesus that is part of the edifice at the Zen Mountain Monastery. And it's, it's, it's weird for me. I got to tell you, it's weird. Because there I am, you know, <laughs> trying to get away from God and trying to get away from Jesus and find my spirituality on my own terms. And then, you know, Jesus, is, you know, there he is, this giant Jesus. I mean, when I walk out on the picnic table I, you know, to, to eat some rice, I've got to deal with Jesus again. Jesus is so annoying. He really. <laughs> There's your epitaph. <laughs> right. Uh, well. So you just spent a weekend at this monastery. Yes. Uh, it was hardly your first of these, right? You've done a bunch now. Yeah, I've been going to the monastery for quite a while. And now you're doing something which is participating in kind of an intensive way without necessarily being there. How does that work? Oh, you, are you talking about the, the ongo? Yeah, the three-month thing. There are two ongos a year. There's a three-month period in the spring, and there's a three-month uh, period in the, in the fall. And my understanding is that the, 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 the ongos go way back, that the ongos go back to ancient times. And the ongo used to be an intensive period of study where one was cloistered for the 90-day period. The Zen Mountain Monastery, the mountain and river's order, they've kind of opened up the ongo a bit so that one can be a lay practitioner and still participate in the ongo to deepen one's commitment or study of Zen in, in numerous ways, whether that's making a commitment to sit every day or being mindful while doing some mundane activity like washing dishes or wiping your ass. Uh, or um, there are other things also. You take up an art art practice, all those things. What I'm doing right now, as far as I'm concerned, is part of the ongo. I am I'm deepening my study of Zen. <laughs> I don't know if that I don't know if that will qualify or not, but I would I would I would I would try to pass this off as part of my ongo study. Yes, talking to me. Yes, talking to you as part of the study. So you know, I'm trying to be part of it part of the sangha which is the uh, the buddhist word for it yeah uh, sangha is, yeah. is a sangha is essentially a congregation right it's a community of practitioners i consider myself a robeless member of the sangha and i i'm actually grateful that they let me in the door and they welcome me there and um you know they don't have to <laughs> so what you said is that you considered talking to me fulfilling that no, not fulfilling it by that. itself but 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 part of it i like to think that everything i do creatively whether it's a you know a podcast like what we're doing now or the work i do on stage or the writing is is in some way somehow informed in some way by my zen practice and if you ask me now 
I don't know that I'd be able to give you a direct answer to that, but I think that this qualifies as as spiritual practice for me. Now, whether or not one of the senior monastics can go along with that, I'm not sure, but I I'm gonna I'm gonna stand by it. Okay. Well, you're developing you know some other work too. You're developing this show um, for this festival that's coming up. Is that also part of this sort of Zen artistic practice? I hope so. You know, it's a little tricky when you're a comedian. In the yoga tradition, uh, there are these gates that um, uh, they talk about mindful speech. And um, before you say something, that you should consider uh, whether what you're about to say is true, whether it's necessary, whether it's kind. Those are the three things. I think I, think I got them all. Is it, is it true? Is it necessary? And is it kind? Well, it's tough for a comedian to always meet that standard, you know, because comedians aren't always kind. I don't know that I'm always kind in my comedy. And, you know, how Zen practice strikes up against satire uh, is an interesting question. You know, but you've performed at the monastery. I have performed at the monastery. Uh, you know, I performed my show uh, Still Ignorant after all these years at the monastery when uh, Ryushin Markai was the abbot at the monastery. As I've joked to myself, every comedian wants to perform at the Catskills. Well, I wasn't at Grotzinger's. I was at the Zen Mountain Monastery, although I can't imagine that they'd ever have me back. I don't know that a stand-up comedian really kind of fits with the current direction of the monastery now. That was really, the further I get away from that, the more I realize what a unique experience that was to be able to uh, be on stage at a monastery for an hour and say what I wanted to, not as a teacher, but as an entertainer. But also as a member of that community. As a member of that community, it was weird. I have to say, it was very strange. In, in the days approaching the show, my, my photograph, my picture was all over the monastery. On the bulletin board, I say all over. It was, it was, it was in three or four places. That felt like all over. Because the monastery is not about any one person. There aren't even pictures of Dido, the the the, the founder at the monastery. No one's seen. I almost felt embarrassed, but I thoroughly enjoyed performing at the monastery. I really loved it, and I was received very well. Listen, after all these years of of performing, and having been maybe the only living person that I, certainly that I know, who's had tomatoes thrown at him. I've been pelted off the stage by an audience throwing tomatoes and salad ingredients at me. That's actually happened. Um, classic. I, I long, I get a classic, it was a long time ago. That's another story in itself. But, um, you know, I'm pretty secure in knowing that I've, I've got something to say and something that, that's, um, that I think worth hearing. Every, Every satirist and comedian has to have a sense of that, or why bother opening your mouth or taking pen pen to the page? But I was able to do this at a place like the Zen Mountain Monastery, I thought it was pretty extraordinary to um, to have that irreverence in this very reverent place. Next time on After the Laundry, the Misery, Joe and I go back to his early days as a comedian, from class clown to taking the stage among the rising stars of the New York scene, to his first writing gigs with National Lampoon alumni, and of course landing his job at MAD, 
For more from Joe, check out joereola.com. And for more from me, Rod Mead Sperry, and my colleagues at the Leading Buddhist Magazine and website, visit lionsroar.com. Thanks for listening to After the Laundry, The Misery.